Hello and welcome back to Tea and Old Books in our new format of once a week rather than every single day. We are reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne and this is day 74 of the Spanish lockdown and of this podcast. Again, and welcome back to this roller coaster of underwater adventure that is the reading of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm feeling pretty good about this new format because I'm feeling more energized than when I was doing it every single day, once a week. That is, that is a good commitment. I still haven't done the show notes, but I will get on that and get it done. Post haste. I mean, there's no real urgency. I don't know if anyone will read them. Now, the tea that I'm drinking today is the last tea of my Bird and Blend May box, and that is a peach julep. And this is a green tea. It says brew for three minutes, take it without milk, and this is the description. A fruity but not sweet peach green tea, perfectly balanced with a twist of sage. This brew is great for those who loved fairy dust or bramble ramble. OG tea birds will remember this one. Now I don't remember that one because I haven't had those teas because I'm new to this tea club. This is my first box. So it's peach flavoured again. <laughs> this is a peach themed box of tea and it tastes quite nice. Let's just have some. Mm. Now I'm drinking this cold today. So I'm drinking it with a straw. It's quite nice. It again tastes of peach, but I guess it's got a little bit of a green tea caffeine boost also. It's nice. It might be my favourite of the three. So we had peach soda, blueberry and peach, and then peach julep. And I think the peach julep is my favourite. Now what happened last episode in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? So in the last episode we read part two, chapter four in which um, the Nautilus sailed through the Red Sea. And we had like a little discussion about some of the creatures there, but mainly the main sort of revelation of that chapter was that Captain Nemo has discovered an underwater tunnel which kind of runs deep underwater underneath the Suez Canal that's been built by the land humans. It's under that. It's like a secret tunnel that links the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, which speeds up the time to get there, makes it much quicker to get there. And Captain Nemo's the only one to know of this, and he's called it the Arabian Tunnel. Mm. So this next chapter, I think we're going to go into the tunnel and get to the Mediterranean, which is my sea. It's the good, good sea. It's the best sea. Maybe the tamest sea. Let's continue. Chapter 5. The Arabian Tunnel. That same evening, in 21 degrees 30 N lat, the Nautilus floated on the surface of the sea, approaching the Arabian coast. I saw Jeddah, the most important counting house of Egypt, Syria, Turkey and India. I distinguished clearly enough its buildings, the vessels anchored at the quays and those whose draught of water obliged them to anchor in the roads. The sun, rather low on the horizon, struck full on the houses of the town. 
bringing out their whiteness. Outside, some wooden cabins, and some made of reeds, showed the quarter inhabited by the Bedouins. Soon, Jeddah was shut out from the view by the shadows of night, and the Nautilus found herself underwater, slightly phosphorescent. The next day, the 11th of February, we sighted several ships running to windward. The Nautilus returned to its submarine navigation, but at noon, when her bearings were taken, the sea being deserted, she rose again to her waterline. Accompanied by Ned and Conseil, I seated myself on the platform. The coast on the eastern side looked like a mass faintly printed upon damp fog. We were leaning on the sides of the pinnace, talking of one thing and another, when Ned Land, stretching out his hand towards the spot on the sea, said, Do you see anything there, sir? No, Ned, I replied, but I have not your eyes, you know. Look well, said Ned. There on the starboard beam, about the height of the lantern, do you not see a mass which seems to move? Certainly, said I, after close attention. I see something like a long black body on the top of the water. And certainly, before long, the black object was not more than a mile from us. It looked like a great sandbank deposited in the open sea. It was a gigantic dugon. Ned Land looked eagerly, just pausing. Oh man, he's going to shoot it, isn't he? He's going to shoot it and then he's going to eat it. Oh, Ned Land, stop killing everything. Let's continue on. His eyes shone with covetousness at the sight of the animal. His hand seemed ready to harpoon it. One would have thought he was awaiting the moment to throw himself into the sea and attack it in its element. At this instant, Captain Nemo appeared on the platform. He saw the dugon, understood the Canadian's attitude, and addressing him, said, If you held a harpoon just now, Master Land, would it not burn your hand? Just so, sir. And you would not be sorry to go back for one day to your trade of fishermen and add the cetacean to the list of those you have already killed? Should not, sir. Well, you can try. Thank you, sir, said Ned Land, his eyes flaming. Only, continued the captain, I advise you for your own sake not to miss the creature. Is the dugon dangerous to attack? I asked, in spite of the Canadian shrug of the shoulders. Yes, replied the captain. Sometimes the animal turns upon its assailants and overturns their boat, but for Master Land this danger is not to be feared. His eye is prompt, his arm sure. At this moment, seven men of the crew, mute and immovable as ever, mounted the platform. One carried a harpoon and a line similar to those employed in catching whales. The pinnacle was lifted from the bridge, pulled from its socket and let down into the sea. Six oarsmen took their seats and the coxswain went to the tiller. Ned, Conseil and I went to the back of the boat. You are not coming, Captain, I asked. No, sir, but I wish you good sport. The boat put off and lifted by the six rowers drew rapidly towards the dugon, which floated about two miles from the Nautilus. Arrived some cable's length from the cetacean, the speed slackened and the oars dipped noiselessly into the quiet waters. Ned Land, harpoon in hand, stood in the forepart of the boat. The harpoon used for striking the whale is generally attached to a very long cord, which runs out rapidly as the wounded creature draws it after him. But here, the cord was not more than ten fathoms long, and the extremity was attached to a small barrel which, by floating, was to show the course the dugon took under the water. I stood and carefully watched the Canadian's adversary. This dugon 
which also bears the name of the halicor, closely resembles the manatee. Its oblong body terminated in a lengthened tail and its lateral fins in perfect fingers. Its difference from the manatee consisted in its upper jaw, which is armed with two long and pointed teeth, which forms on each side diverging tusks. This dugong, which Ned Land was preparing to attack, was of colossal dimensions. It was more than seven yards long. It did not move and seemed to be sleeping on the waves, which circumstance made it easier to capture. The boat approached within six yards of the animal. The oars rested on the rowlocks. I half rose. Ned Land, his body thrown back a little, brandished the harpoon in his experienced hand. Suddenly, a hissing noise was heard, and the dugon disappeared. The harpoon, although thrown with great force, had apparently only struck the water. Curse it, exclaimed the Canadian, furiously. I have missed it. No, said I. The creature is wounded. Look at the blood. But your weapon has not stuck in his body. My harpoon, my harpoon, cried Ned Land. The sailors rode on, and the coxswain made for the floating barrel. The harpoon regained, we followed in pursuit of the animal. The latter came now and then to the surface to breathe. Its wound had not weakened it, for it shot onwards with great rapidity. The boat, rowed by strong arms, flew on its track. Several times it approached within some few yards, and the Canadian was ready to strike, but the dugon made off with a sudden plunge, and it was impossible to reach it. Imagine the passion which excited impatient Ned Land. He hurled at the unfortunate creature the most energetic expletives in the English tongue. For my part, I was only vexed to see the dugon escape all our attacks. We pursued it without relaxation for an hour, and I began to think it would prove difficult to capture, when the animal, possessed with the perverse idea of vengeance, of which he had cause to repent, turned upon the pinnacle and assailed us in its turn. This manoeuvre did not escape the Canadian. Look out, he cried. The coxswain said some words in his outlandish tongue, doubtless warning the men to keep on their guard. The dugong came within twenty feet of the boat, stopped, sniffed the air briskly with its large nostrils, not pierced at the extremity but in the upper part of its muzzle. Then, taking a spring, he threw himself upon us. The pinnacle could not avoid the shock, and half upset shipped at least two tons of water, which had to be emptied. But, thanks to the coxswain, we caught it sideways, not forefront, so we were not quite overturned. While Ned Land, clinging to the bows, belaboured the gigantic animal with blows from his harpoon, the creature's teeth were buried in the gunwale, and it lifted the whole thing out of the water as a lion does a roebuck. We were upset over one another, and I know not how the adventure would have ended if the Canadian, still enraged with the beast, had not struck it to the heart. I heard its teeth grind on the iron plate, and the dugong disappeared, carried, carrying the harpoon with him. But the barrel soon returned to the surface, and shortly after the body of the animal turned on its back. The boat came up with it, took it in tow, and made straight for the Nautilus. It required a tackle of enormous strength to hoist the dugong onto the platform. It weighed 10,000 pounds. The next day, 11th February, the larder of the Nautilus was enriched by some more delicate game. A flight of sea swallows rested on the Nautilus. It was a species of the Sterna neolithica peculiar to Egypt. Its beak is black, head grey and pointed, the eye surrounded by white spots, black the back, wings and tail of a greyish colour, the belly and throat white, and claws red. 
They also took some dozen of Nile ducks, a wild bird of high flavour, its throat and upper part of the head white with black spots. Just pausing. Man, they were just eating everything. This is more like a gastronomic tour than uh, like a natural history tour, quite frankly. Like, they're not really interested in the behaviour of these animals. They're just interested in how they taste and how easy they are to catch. My goodness, I need a drink. All right, carrying on. About five o'clock in the evening, we sighted to the north the Cape of Ras Mohammed. This cape forms the extremity of Arabia Petria, comprised between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Nautilus penetrated into the Straits of Jubal, which leads to the Gulf of Suez. I distinctly saw a high mountain towering between the two gulfs of Ras Mohammed. It was Mount Horeb, that Sinai at the top of which Moses saw God face to face. At six o'clock, the Nautilus, sometimes floating, sometimes immersed, passed some distance from Tor, situated at the end of the bay, the waters of which seemed tinted with red, an observation already made by Captain Nemo. Then night fell in the midst of a heavy silence, sometimes broken by the cries of the pelican and other night birds, and the noise of the waves breaking upon the shore, chafing against the rocks, or the panting of some far-off steamer beating the waters of the gulf with its noisy paddles. From eight o'clock to nine o'clock, the Nautilus remained some fathoms under the water. According to my calculation, we must have been very near Suez, though through the panel of the saloon I saw the bottom of the rocks, brilliantly lit up by our electric lamp. We seemed to be leaving the straits behind us more and more. At a quarter past nine, the vessel having returned to the surface, I mounted the platform. Most impatient to pass through Captain Nemo's tunnel, I could not stay in one place, so came to breathe the fresh night air. Soon in the shadow I saw a pale light, half discoloured by the fog, shining about a mile from us. A floating lighthouse, said someone near me. I turned and saw the captain. It is the, flight, the floating light of Suez, he continued. It will not be long before we gain entrance of the tunnel. The entrance cannot be easy. No, sir. For that reason, I am accustomed to go into the steersman's cage and myself direct our course. And now, if you will go down, Monsieur Aranay, the Nautilus is going under the waves and will not return to the surface until we have passed through the Arabian Tunnel. Captain Nemo led me towards the central staircase. Halfway down, he opened a door, traversed the upper deck and landed in the pilot's cage, which, it may be remembered, rose at the extremity of the platform. It was a cabin, measuring six feet square, very much like that occupied by the pilot on the steamboats of the Mississippi or Hudson. In the midst worked a wheel, placed vertically, and caught to the tiller rope, which ran to the back of the Nautilus. Four light ports, with lenticular glasses, let in a groove in the partition of the cabin, allowed the man at the wheel to see in all directions. This cabin was dark, but soon my eyes accustomed themselves to the obscurity, and I perceived the pilot, a strong man, with his hands resting on the spokes of the wheel. Outside, the sea appeared vividly lit up by the lantern, which shed its rays from the back of the cabin to the other extremity of the platform. Now, said Captain Nemo, let us try to make our passage. Electric wires connected the pilot's cage with the machinery room, and from there the captain could communicate simultaneously to his, to his Nautilus the direction and speed. He pressed a metal knob, and at once the speed of the screw diminished. 
I looked in silence at the high straight wall we were running by at this moment, the immovable base of a massive sandy coast. We followed it thus for an hour, only some few yards off. Captain Nemo did not take his eye from the knob, suspended by its two concentric circles in the cabin. At a simple gesture, the pilot modified the course of the Nautilus every instant. I had placed myself at the port scuttle and saw some magnificent substructures of coral, zoophyte, seaweed and fucus, agitating their enormous claws which stretched out from the fissures of the rock. At a quarter past ten, the captain himself took the helm. A large gallery, black and deep, opened before us. The Nautilus went boldly into it. A strange roaring was heard around its sides. It was the waters of the Red Sea, which the incline of the tunnel precipitated violently towards the Mediterranean. The Nautilus went with the torrent, rapid as an arrow, in spite of the efforts of the machinery, which, in order to offer more effective resistance, beat the waves with reversed screw. On the walls of the narrow passage I could see nothing but brilliant rays, straight lines, furrows of fire traced by the great speed under the brilliant electric light. My heart beat fast. At thirty-five minutes past ten, Captain Nemo quitted the helm, and turning to me, said, The Mediterranean. In less than twenty minutes, the Nautilus, carried along by the torrent, had passed through the Isthmus of Suez. End of the chapter. Ooh, okay, so they've sped through and ended up in the Mediterranean. Maybe that's all the seas they've been in now, maybe. Hmm. Should have been keeping count of what seas they were in. Well, I can go back and do it later. It's interesting. Now, as I pause to comment partway through, man, they are eating a lot of animals in this. Like, they can't see something without killing it. That poor dugong. Like, they're just this huge, interesting beast, and the first thing they think is, let us kill it and then eat it. And that's what they do. Man, so destructive. Anyway, that was fun. So I'm going to stop. And I will continue reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea next week, next Wednesday. Please do join me then.